Hi folks, before we start the podcast, I'm asking for a favor. If you're listening to this on your phone now, maybe take it out, look at the screen and check out the link in the bottom that says patreon.com forward slash tortoiseshack. In there, there's a range of options that you can help support this podcast and the wider Tortoise Shack platform. We rely on you. It's as simple as that. There are thousands of people listening and we're very grateful for that. But we really need people to try and help chip in and keep this show on the road and keep these mics on. And it's not a one-way street. For the few quid you give us, you get a ton of extra content. There's access to over a thousand of our back catalog podcasts right now. You get one consolidated RSS feed. The podcasts come out plea-free, so you don't have to listen to me rattling the bucket. And you get the podcasts as quickly as we can turn them around. So right now, this week alone, you're missing out on fantastic conversation we had with Executive Director of Irish Rule of Law, Angus Kelly, and his upcoming trip to Ukraine to investigate war crimes that have taken place there. We also had Mental Health Reforms Interim CEO Roisin Clark talking about their cost of waiting campaign and their pre-budget submission. And as a special treat, later on in the week, we're hoping to be rejoined by, uh, listeners will recall, the engineer who worked with NASA uh, to put a helicopter on Mars. And he is currently obviously back at NASA now and looking at the Artemis project and why 50 years later we're returning to the moon. Cannot wait to catch up with Lowy. He's a fantastic character, unbelievable backstory and get a great insight into what is happening now in space exploration and you know we're talking to a man who has literally made history so uh, all of that will be there on patreon.com forward slash tortoise as quickly as i can turn it around thanks for the support thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast hello and welcome to the echo chamber podcast my name is tony groves and uh martin this is uh this is becoming a bit of a habit you're showing up what's going on yeah 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 i was in the hospital yesterday just just a, a, a nice little slide there we were in the i was in the hospital yesterday so hmm. hopefully hopefully they'll get it sorted and i can stay well they're looking for a de- decent uh steak knife and fork <laughs> well as you keep texting me have they found your heart yet and yeah. the answer is always no yeah it's the well it, it, that's because it's so black it can't be found <laughs> um anyway we're, we're, the, the insults are flying i i will say isn't it by the time we finish here martin probably robert troy will have another statement out clarifying something that he had to clarify from earlier but you know folks we can't we try to keep abreast of these things it's just it's it's all moving you're very, not very in mullingar anymore toto <laughs> more, more well, what is it? What what have you been calling it? Mullingar, Mullingar, Lago. Yeah, <laughs> we'll go there. Anyway, look, we're delighted to be joined by uh, uh, by my hospital consultant, rheumatologist Laura Durkin. Laura, it's been a while. How have you been? It's good to see you. Good, good. I've been kind of sick of uh, so much medical talk. So yeah, I'm happy to to talk about normal stuff and. Uh, yeah, it's good. How are you guys? Good we're, to see you. We're good, and 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 it's 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 when we say yeah, I think there was a fatigue there for everybody in terms of because we were constantly, especially on like between yourself, uh, Kleena, Anthony, and everybody, we were just rolling through the. Uh, tell us how bad it is now. Tell us how bad it is now. But unfortunately, Laura, I'm going to ask <laughs> you anyway. Tell me how bad is it now? <laughs> Uh, do you know, like I love the summertime. Summer is great. People go on holidays. The farm is better. Like we're still horrendously busy. It's really busy, but it's actually been a, it's been really nice to do some proper medicine and to not talk about COVID all the time and to move on a little bit to the bread and butter of like looking after people. And yeah, it's great. I feel like a weight has lifted off me, actually. I'm in great form. And I think things are, you know, morale is a little bit better than it was. It always helps when the sun shines. Uh, you know, and we're tight. Everything is tight. Everybody's busy. But generally speaking, I would say there's been a bit of a dawn of well, some vague optimism on the horizon and things are definitely better than they were. 
That's really encouraging to hear that because, but uh, at, at the, on the flip side, we also see a bit of a staffing crunch and um, losing losing people from. Um, and I mean, there, there's been some insane stuff commentary online, some insane commentary in, in the media. But um, you know, I, I I saw one former one for, one former independent journalist uh, from the Irish Independent saying we should you know oh we, they should be made to stay um, because we we've. The state have spent all this money on, on medical professionals. Laura, give us a sense if you don't mind. Is this? Do you think this is um, pandemic fatigue playing out later on, or, or are people just getting better options, better offers? Yeah. So, so I suppose, like from a medical perspective, we would say um, the I would call like the interns, the SHO. So in medical training, intern year is your first year after you come out of university. Um, and then you get your kind of medical license at the end of your intern year. So that first year of training is kind of part of your uh, apprenticeship, for want of a better word. And then after that, it's your training towards your specialty or whatever. Um, so we've never had empty posts at intern level ever before in Ireland. So we know that we train um, more per head of population than pretty much anywhere in Europe. Um, and we also know that the top of our pyramid is the smallest anywhere in Europe. So we know that we have a, a huge challenge in terms of the number that come out from university versus the number that are here in Ireland at the top of the pyramid. And, you know, that's kind of it, it trickles down because you train them to come up. Um, and so this has been the first year in Ireland where we have unfilled intern posts. And this is really interesting because historically we never had unfilled intern posts. And actually the, the flip up was the case where we had, a, you know, way too many graduates who wanted our intern posts and a huge challenge with people getting their intern jobs. So this year has been the first year where this has happened probably ever. So that's a little bit worrying because people have to actually you know, they've changed it. Some of them can go to the UK to get their licensing now. So they're just their, their flexibility has increased. And with that, I suppose they've started to leave a little bit earlier. So for me, that's the that's a real red flag. We've never had an intern problem before. So this year was the first year we don't feel post at intern level. Um, in terms of the next step up, so the SHO schemes in Ireland, so the schemes that you would do the first two years to say, I'm either going to be a medical doctor, or a surgical doctor, an anesthetics doctor. You do what be, what's called basic training. And that's usually two, maybe sometimes three years of like, you know, getting your basic skills together and deciding on what little specialty area you're going to go into. And we've never really, certainly in the Dublin teaching hostels, we've never had gaps in those roaches. They've been really highly sought after jobs. And this year in medicine, we have loads of unfilled basic training posts. And again, that means gaps in rotas, other people being stressed and pulled in different directions. And, it, and it, historically, those would have been really sought after jobs. People would have been competing to get to the next level of training. And now we see a thing where we're practically, you know, we're begging people to come on to our training schemes, which is a, a massive shift from where we were at even 10 years ago. And so we always had like, so the intern year, you get to the end of your intern year, you've got your license in your hand. You're like, you know, I'm a free agent. I want to go to Bondi Beach or wherever it is for a year. I want to stop off in Bali on the way home. Like, I love these stories. I didn't do it, but like, I love living vicariously through people. But they they went to Australia for a year, came back ready to take on their training scheme, you know, got all their partying out of, out of their system. Whereas now they go to Australia with a much more kind of long-term plan where they say, this is a great place to work. It's a great place to train. I'm treated really well here. I'm going to stay here for a while. You know, it's not like the old days where you were feeding money into a machine, into a phone to ring your mom once a week. Like people are Skyping their parents every evening. And some people will see more of their parents in Australia than they would if they were like, you know, ringing home to Mayo. So, you know, the world has become a much smaller place. And 
if you look at the medical staffing in places like New South Wales or, you know, any of those places, like they have huge challenges attracting doctors and having enough doctors in their hospitals. And so if you have problems in Australia where people are really well, from what I hear, really well looked after. I suppose it's no big surprise, given what we have in Ireland, that, you know, we're, we've got gaps and we can't keep selling the green fields that Kathleen Nihulu on because truthfully, you know, the world is, is contracting. And while the world becomes smaller and smaller, medicine actually gets cooler and cooler. And so the more cool things we do and the longer we keep people alive, the more in demand we are. So I say, you know, we look at things, you're like, there's cool new treatments. We keep people alive until they're older. You know, we do all these things, but with increasing age is complex care. You'll develop other comorbid diseases. You'll need to see more doctors. And so we've kind of created this thing where, you know, we're really good at diseases now. We treat people really well. They live long and fulfilling lives with lots of chronic diseases. And all of those little chronic diseases need to be looked after. And so we need the manpower to do that and to make sure that the gains that we've seen in humanity in terms of longevity and quality of life that continue. Because you see in America, you know, they had this huge increase in their life expectancy and it's kind of starting to taper off, which is a little bit worrying. Now, you know, we are all going to have to die of something and, you know, that's a fact. But the fact that medicine increasingly impacts on all these cool diseases so that people walk away from what would have been life ending diagnosis means that, you know, our successes are people who are still living and they're living longer. And so we have to mind them. And if you look at America, where doctors make tons of money, really well treated, you know, now America has its own massive problems with its health service, but they're predicting like a, like a couple of hundred thousand vacant jobs in the next 10 years within the medical sector um, at like physician level. And so we, 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 uh, we all need to go to Cuba route. I, I mean, I know this sounds a bit, a bit, we're, we're making a joke about it, but Cuba recently sent doctors to Italy. They've, they've, they, you know, we we know they've done this across across decades for for places that were in need. They've recently sent a, a team of doctors to to plug gaps in struggling areas in Italy, and it's it's. I know again I, here at Martin. How long? Who, who had ten minutes before I went full socialist? Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but but no, sorry, Martin. I know you wanted to come in there. Yeah, Laura, you're saying that it's not necessarily the money that's driving people out of the health system. But it's a better lifestyle elsewhere. And you've picked Australia as a very good example where you can have a nice lifestyle, still work hard, have a nice lifestyle and take home similar rates of pay. Is it the state of the Irish healthcare system that is just driving people out of it? So I suppose there's a few layers to that, isn't there? You know, everyone wants to be happy at work. Everyone wants to be happy at home, you know. Um, when I was at Johns Hopkins, they gave this talk when you went in, you know, about work-life balance. And like, obviously I was, you know, it's very type A place to work. And, and they said, you know, you should never expect that you would have a balanced life because nobody has a balanced life. All that you can expect is that you should be happy at work and you should be happy at home. And that's about as much as you can ever achieve. I was like, okay, you know what? That's actually reasonable. If I can achieve happiness that I'm content at work and that I can work on everything to be content at home, then you know what, if that's how my life lands, I'll actually be okay with that. But I suppose from the the quality of life piece and the, you know, the the frustrations and the like it, it's so multifactorial. So you're like, right, so in Ireland you will have paper charts, you will have 27 steps to book every scan, you will have to go to discuss those scans in person, you will then have to follow up on those reports. 
Um, you know, you'll have no way for the blood test to come back to you unless you set reminders in your notebook to go check them. You know, there will be like challenges on a day to day basis that will impact upon your efficiencies. A hundred percent. You'll get to work with really great Irish doctors. Irish doctors are really well trained. They're phenomenally good. It will make, you know, you will learn a lot. You will see a lot of pathology because you'll see a lot of volume. So what will go through your hands, you'll become a really efficient, well-rounded physician at the end of it, but you will work incredibly hard for that. And so I suppose the training piece, there's definitely an abuse within that that's entrenched. So like the 24-hour shifts are an absolute misery. They're a no-go for some people. There were 36 hours when I did them. But to be honest, I was like um, Stockholm syndrome. I knew no better. I didn't have a voice. I did what I was told to do. Um, I drove my car home with the windows down and the radio blaring and hoped to Christ I stayed awake until I got to bed and then I went to bed. But truthfully, people now realise that that's complete insanity and that what we were doing back then was actually probably completely negligent. And so, you know, they've said, I don't want to work for 24 hours. I want working conditions where I can do 12 hours and I can go home. And I think, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a completely reasonable ask. Like there's nobody would say, no, no, we want you to stay for 24 hours to treat the most vulnerable people in society when you're at your stupidest and most sleep deprived. So like there is that kind of, you know, cop on piece. Well, like, the, well, well it does tally with the uh, uh, non-hospital consultant doctor's uh, idea of 24 no more campaign as well, Laura. I mean, um, like th- that is that is something that I I think I mean I think is that strike still going ahead October eighth um, or or are we waiting on more I developments? Actually, I actually don't know, but I'll be like out the front, like totally gobby. I I would be fully supportive of them to be honest. But having said that, I think you know there are definitely like you know I I, I I'm our first preference. You know we massive priority to the patients. I suppose my first thing is that a lot of what they ask for is completely reasonable and sensible and should just happen. They shouldn't have to strike. They should be on 12-hour rosters. That's just normal. It's not anything abnormal. It's normal. It would be normal that they get paid on time. They get paid the right amount. It would be normal that they don't get taxed, put on emergency tax every three months. It would be completely normal that couples get to go to different cities in the country together. It's It would be like, it's not an abnormal ask to say, listen, you know, my partner is going to be in Cork next year and I'm going to be in Galway, is there any way we could both be in Cork next year? And like, you know, that's couples matching is the thing in the States. We should do that for our trainees. You should live with your family. That's a pretty basic ask. You know, so I would say, look, I think they're completely right in all that they ask for, but what they're asking for is really straightforward, sensible stuff that we should have it within our gift to provide them 100%. Can I ask about overcrowding in the hospitals at the moment, Lauren, particularly in A&Es, we are hearing constant, constant stories of elderly people, of people who are very ill. And and the wait time in A&Es at the moment is 13.75 hours for 75 and older. Is that a real huge problem in the health service? Yeah, so there's, I suppose there's the two pieces to the A&E piece, right? So there's the inability to have space in your ED because it's filled with admitted medical patients. So I'm sure, Martin, you've experienced this over the years, but that thing where you're admitted to the hospital, you're in a kind of a twilight zone because there's no beds up the house. And so you're parked on a trolley or whatever in the emergency department. And what happens every time someone is parked on a trolley is that that's a space within the hospital that the ED guys can't use to assess patients. So you start to contract the workspace of the emergency department because it's filled with medical patients. 
the nurses who look after you when you're on a trolley are the nurses who should be looking after the people waiting in the waiting room, you know, getting them through, getting them sorted. But they're instead minding the admitted patients. So the amount of space and the amount of the workforce that goes into then seeing the punters who are yet to be seen or sitting in the waiting room diminishes. So you've nowhere to see them. And you have very few staff to actually see them because the staff are looking after the admitted patients. And so I would say the first piece of that um, ED is to give people is to give the emergency departments back their space. So the only way you can do that is to ensure that that person who's on a trolley, once the medical team says, listen, you're sick, you're going to have to come into hospital, that they actually go to a bed. And once they're gone to a bed, then the next person comes in and the next person and the next person. And so you actually have turnover within your department. What's happening at the moment, Martin, is that because there's so many on little trolleys, your space to see those whatever 20, 40, 50 patients waiting in the waiting room is like maybe one bay. And so you're trying your best to turn over through that one bay. But like you bring them in, you say, right, we're going to have to wait in your liver function tests, see what they look like. And so that's three hours. And so it's just very difficult to use the space. And so the first piece, and I would say, listen, I'm totally in favour of there being more staff in ED, but you have to give them the ED to work in. And that pretty much means that there has to be more beds up the house. Now, I know beds are slow, or but like pathways for admitted patients like loads of different things can happen but you have to give them a department to work in otherwise you're just pouring staff into a place where they have no space to see patients i'm hearing at the moment that a lot of the delays through a and e's is actually getting people into step down services and that's where the most and because there is no housing available there are homeless people in a and e who have nowhere to go because there is no facilities available for people with addictions there is nowhere for them to go so they are stuck in a and e they are taking up beds in a and e but also that if you had a, a consultant triage rather than nurse-led triage that there would be faster movement through the hospital and through the a and e do you think any of that would be worthwhile so I love the piece about like I love what you you point on there um, about housing because certainly those vulnerable the vulnerable people who don't have secure housing definitely have a huge healthcare utilization and 100% you know there's a big issue with both illness being caused by inappropriate housing and then trying to discharge people to inappropriate housing so both of those are huge challenges. And having said that, I would say personally at the moment, I get people to offsite for things like rehab or I, I, our, our team are pretty efficient in terms of arranging nursing homes for those who need them. That kind of flow piece, I would say, has improved with COVID, actually. Um, I suppose what the consultant triage piece, like, I don't know, like we did consultant triage for a significant period of time. Some of the Dublin hospitals continue to do it. Um I, I, I'm not really sure that there's evidence that it, it speeds things up. Um, I think that it's almost a case, Martin, and I don't mean to disrespect anyone, but the taxi drivers out the front could tell you who the sick people are for the most part. You know, I, I think that, you know, most people sitting in the waiting room could point out the sick people. Um, and I don't know necessarily that putting a consultant there and saying sick, not sick, sick, not sick, sick, not sick, which is essentially what triage is or, you know, levels of illness. I'm not sure that that's been shown to complete to improve the ED process. What I would love to see is those consultants having the actual space to flip through, get through those patients and have a workflow. And so I would say that the consultant time is best spent getting those patients moving. And I don't know that the triage would change things, but I'm totally open to correction if, if people think it would. 
Just um, something else uh, strikes me, and it sounds like I don't know. We've been very dark. One, what a point of one fun thing actually. Niall Conroy went against everybody, uh, the, the, and co- came home from Australia. But then he, of course, his tweet went viral uh, because he put up and he said, "Well, here's here's uh, here's the sort of I could rent something for half that price that you're renting in Dublin, and I and I had the views of this of the sea. So you know, you weren't exactly selling it, Niall. If you're listening to this, <laughs> you, you didn't you didn't you didn't sell coming home very well. Um, but there's there is there's a lot of disputes going on right now and you know we're, we're martin i is speaking some of it from first-hand experience i think martin you've been in and out of hospital maybe eight times this year already uh, um, i think it's 10 <laughs> yeah i think it's 10 yeah we were it was it, it was it was almost fortnightly there for a little while and um we, we know but but some of the other stuff you know in terms of the the trolley counts disputes between the hsc the the imo and and and, and we're and there's there's talk like of of falsification of, of report of reports of working hours as well Laura I mean some of this uh, strikes me as someone who's deeply cynical of bureaucracy that there is an issue there that that if if they can't even if they can't agree on who's working what hours that that that's a that's a problem in in the hierarchy and structure and, and how it's work working I know we're saying that the people on the front line of the coalface are doing their best, but it's very hard to be doing your best if the if the other guys can be just fudging the numbers behind you. Yeah. So I think what you're getting at, Tony, is is that concept of culture, isn't it? Hmm. So, you know, and your culture being a, a, a thing that is all encompassing in your organization, but also comes from the top down, doesn't it? Hmm. And I suppose I think that the structure is whereby the DOH and HSE are kind of independent republics. And they're both very kind of far removed from the day-to-day operations of providing healthcare for people. I think that there's a, a little thing where each individual hospital perhaps has their own kind of culture or, you know, kind of the way we do things, et cetera, and a certain pride in their own institution. But there, the, that pride piece and that accountability piece and all the rest of it do, doesn't extend past the institution. And so I would say, one of the one of the best things I had when I was in the states was, and it was the first thing I'd first time really I'd experienced it, was that thing where people had a massive pride about where they worked, and they were really invested in their institution and invested in the quality of care that they provided. And I think we work really hard in Ireland to try to provide that. But I, 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 my thought that we we are not unified in that each individual hospital has a kind of a way we do things, and the HSE DOH being so distinct and separate from that I think is a problem in terms of the culture and how we make people feel um I suppose the the other thing you, you've touched on is is obviously the the paperwork the difficulties of getting the work done the modernization we know oh. yeah but I mean like we I this is not anecdotal I met a guy who came over to tender for he he literally works for hospital um tech in in the Emirates. Okay. He goes around. He's so that's what they outline. And he came over to, to, to tender, um, for working in the national children's hospital that was being built. They knew they weren't going to get it, but it suited him because his uh, family were in Dublin and he got to come home for, for a few nights, you know? And he, and he said to me that, that, you know, how bad it actually is compared to what it looks like in terms of how the, the technology is mapped to the patient. And, you know, even, even people on, even, the experience of someone visiting someone in hospital was different for because the technology would would direct people in the directions they needed to go. Um, I saw you actually mention it uh, about a few hours ago, I think, on social media. Just give me this, give me this system, please. Tell me, Laura, where are we on modernization? And and oh, oh my god, 
So when I see a patient, I get a I may or may not have a paper chart. So when I see a patient in ED, I will do a paper chart. I'll have an ED note system, which is written on paper. And then I will so fill out my little section, do an admission, see the admission, write my little consultant note. And then by the time they get to the ward, which is maybe whatever, 24 hours, whatever amount of time up, somebody will request their chart, their chart will arrive. I'll get the big envelope of previous investigations, letters, etc. And I, my team on a daily basis will write a medical note, which will outline their current problems, you know, what we want to do about their current problems, their medication, and perhaps pertinent blood results or whatever plan for discharge, where we're going with this person. And they'll write that on like, you know, scribble it on a piece of paper every single day diligently. Um, it the like there's huge evidence that having an electronic patient healthcare record diminishes error in hospitals. We know in hospitals, Martin, you'll have had your card X written twenty seven thousand times. You'll have, somebody will have gotten your meds wrong twenty seven thousand times. I can guarantee it. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And we know that if we were electronically prescribing those meds, it would immediately flag what interacts with what. What meds you're on in the community would feed into it. We'd be like, okay, well, these look exactly the same. This is what you should get. Whereas instead, someone comes into me with a scrap of paper, says this is what they're on. I kind of scribble it, you know, or whoever's admitting them will scribble it out. Invariably, there'll be an error detected somewhere along the line. That wouldn't have happened if we had electronic prescribing or if we had an electronic patient record. Similarly, when a GP wants to find out what happened to someone in hospital, they have to wait for a discharge letter to be typed up by my poor intern at the end of their admission to the hospital, rather than the GP being able to access into the records and saying, oh, look what happened. Isn't that so interesting? If you go to another hospital, no matter what investigations you've had done, they will start from scratch. That's 100%. That is 100%. And so no matter where you've been, who you are, who owns you, they will order your scan again. They will do your bloods again. They will start from scratch. And honestly, nothing talks to anything else. And if you want to get something from one hospital to another, it is, uh, it's, it's almost impossible. You might as well give up your day on the phone trying to get a record from one hospital to the other. So, yeah. I call that chaotic care. And I call it, it's not that the standard of care is bad. It's that the communication is chaotic between hospitals and you can end up in different hospitals. I mean, I'm in three different bloody hospitals and none of them communicate with each other. I do notice that my GP has far more online records and whatever. He can just pull it up, touch of a button, whereas nobody can in a hospital. Nobody can. He can actually pull up the hospital's records quicker than the hospital can pull up their own records. Yeah, well, fair, fair play to your GP. But like, listen, if, if I could, if we could be writing notes, if we could write notes online, if we could have a continuously, you know, a live patient record where you were actually writing your notes, looking after your patient at the same time, you could see the vital signs. Like the, the when I was in the, now I, I worked in America, it's like six years ago now. But like my patient had this little, there was an app on their phone where they could access their records. They could look at their own notes. And if they had a question, they could text me on the app. And it would come up and they'd say, you know, hi, Dr. Durkin, just wondering if my CT scan is back. And that would come up and it would ping on my app, my notifications. And I'd be able to click on the app, open their CT scan report, flick it over to them and say, all looks good, Mary. And they'd have that in real time. And the same, I'd be able to say, your blood count is perfect. Off you go. Now, that was a little bit problematic for me because my phone was very much in my hand. So. (laughs) 
and I'm very responsive to notifications. So, but like, obviously you'd, you, you can modify your own behaviors, but the fact that the patients have that interface to their own records, and it sounds like they'd be, you know, wrecking your head 24 seven, but actually not at all. They were all fabulous. And it was communication pieces that actually they needed to know. And I was really delighted to be able to say, to be able to type a little text to say, you know, thumbs up emojis all looking good and that's an amazing service to be able to offer someone and that's when somebody has access to their own records it's actually very difficult to get access to your own records here i did it recently and uh, i asked for i did a gdpr and asked for all my own records and the first question i asked was asked is why (laughs) why do you want your own records and i think part of that too is that usually when it comes to access for records in ireland it's about litigation yeah. So, so when somebody has, so I've had, you know, scenarios where other patients have had been in litigation or whatever, and they do have little marks on the chart from where it's been photocopied. So when you pick up the paper chart, they'll, somebody who's been photocopying it to give it to the patient will have numbered it at the top. So you can always see when you when in our institution, anyway, you can see if notes have been obtained by somebody, be it legal solicitor or whatever. Um, but like, Martin, that's your data. Like, that's your body. Oh, I completely know. And I completely understand. I just said, I'm writing a book. Please give me my date. <laughs> and I got it, you know. But like you should have, now I get it, you know, nobody wants to be blind reading a biopsy report. Like yeah. you know, nobody wants to get their CT scan, which isn't maybe what they want to see themselves. But like there were filters so that, you know, bloods and et cetera all went to them. Uh, very abnormal flags would go through the doctor before they went to the patient. And so like, you know, I'm not suggesting now that someone gets a text message to say that they have a brain tumor or whatever, you know, like that's not what I'm talking about. But having access to that and what they could also do was when you change providers, you could give them, you know, you could say, look, this is my CT report. This is my, and that patient engagement piece is almost completely absent in, our, in, in amongst Irish patients because they don't have access to that information. I have to agree with you. And I, I do. And I know this is a criticism of, of the medical profession in general. A lot of the time you feel like a piece of meat. A lot of the time you do. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I think you've spent too long in hospitals. Martin, and <laughs> well, we just know- no, I think they're very good at treating the illness, they're very good at treating the illness, but you are more than an illness. You're a person. You yeah. are a person. And I think sometimes that's lost in translation, that you are a person. You want to understand what's happening to you. You want to understand we good. And I also think that a lot of it is the actual pressure within the hospitals, as you say, to keep people flowing through. Um, I think that general pl- pressure on staff I mean, over the last 12 years, I've seen kind of a, a, a distancing of what I would call the care element, which is not what you know. It's the being nice to people. It's yeah. the pass a minute with somebody. There's a lot less now than there was 10 years ago. I think it's because they don't. you're not supposed to sit in the bed anymore, Warren. <laughs> I, I, I think he's just, you literally sound like uh, not, not, it wasn't like that in my day. You're, you're I, 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 think, I know, I think no, there's an element, there's an element of, there's an, look again, uh, this is anecdotal. This is your experience, but, mm. uh, but again, we'll, we'll frame it all different. But Laura, last, very last thing for me then, um, you obviously, uh, have, have heard, like, I mean, it's not a, what I think it was a Brendan O'Connor at the weekend saying that sure they don't even work weekends and, and they don't, they don't, they don't work these hours. Um, has there been 
like the, you know, if we went from the whole world standing outside lighting candles for for frontline workers and healthcare workers and clapping on our doorsteps and all this to now all of a sudden going trying to change the mute music back. Oh, they're looking for they're looking for new they're looking for new contracts. The it the, 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 the everything seems to have come back again very quickly. Eating bread has been very soon forgotten. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, look, listen, I absolutely love Brandon O'Connor. I think he's brilliant. So, uh, so like, it's just you then, is it? <laughs> You're the one that listens. <laughs> <laughs> so, so oh, I suppose that, that, like, I was sitting at home and my other half was in for the weekend because he just, he'll do call for the, the full weekend. And so he was in. Um, I would have laid eyes on him. Um, and I suppose. You know, and the same would be completely true of, say, my colleagues in surgery, my colleagues in, you know, if you're in medicine, you're in for the weekend, trudging around the place. Um, And I suppose what isn't there at the weekends, and I think it's very hard to communicate this, what isn't there at the weekends are the services to actually provide the care. So, like, I'm only one person, so I can go in and I can be like, you know, he needs this, 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 this and this, and then he can hit hit the road. And, you know, at a stretch, I'll get the scandal. And but then I won't get the other stuff done because the hospital just doesn't operate on a seven day basis. And it's the same across everyone. I can tell you that on the the Saturday theatre lists, the extra add ons, the, you know, the evening clinics, all of that bit, the consultants say yes, like they always do. They go, yeah, sure. Yeah. Like the the, the lads in our place would actually probably stab each other in the back for theatre time. Like you could probably tell them that they had a theatre list from 12 o'clock at night to four o'clock in the morning and they'd be like savage that sounds amazing so <laughs> I don't I, I think that when somebody says that the hospital needs to operate on a seven-day basis I think that what they're saying well I think when they say consultants need to be in every day the consultants are in every day but what they want is a 24-7 service and like cool I totally in favor however that's not how the hospital actually works because nobody there so you know, I think it's just I think that was a misinformed comment, but it really annoyed people um, mostly because they were there and they're there every day, day in, day out. And when the shit, excuse my French, hits the fan, they're there again. It's them that's on the phone, you know. So so I think sometimes people will throw a little bit of dirt in the hope that it sticks somewhere. But truthfully, you know, lowest number in Europe, but actually, you know, getting through the work and so far as they can. And really, I would say I've never seen at a hospital management level, I've never seen an initiative that's been suggested that the doctors haven't gone. Sounds great. Like I've never seen something shot down by the medics or the surgeons. I've seen lots of things. And this is not like the porters are going to come for me now. I've seen lots of things shot down by admin because there's no support by porter because there's no support by other people. I really have. And they're totally right. They need to all be in place too. But I have yet to go into a service development piece where the consultants are like, nah. And in reality, if you were to run a hospital 24-7, you could only double the staff you have at the moment and you can't get enough staff as it is at the moment. So it's it's catch-22 situation. It's a nice idea that they'd run 24-7, though, all the same. Um, do we necessarily need it in a country like Ireland? I think there'd be an argument there that if we had enough numbers uh, uh during the, the normal hours that we wouldn't have the backlogs that we do. I think that argument yeah. is is very clear. Yeah, I totally agree. So I think if we got if we got our eight to six right, that would be awesome. I think if we got our eight to eight right, it would be phenomenal and it would get us a long way. Um and at the moment we don't have that. So like I, I totally agree with you. Yeah. 
Laura, thanks very much for coming on and having this chat. As always, it is lovely to have a chat with you to get a better insight into what's go- going on. Um, it's nice that you feel optimistic. And it is nice. That 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 is good. And uh, you know. Listen, if I don't if I don't sell it well, nobody's ever going to come back to work with me. My NCHDs will leave. I'll be totally on my own. I have mm. to sell it. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you again for coming on and having this chat with us. Have a nice but, evening. Listen, folks, we are back. Um uh, we're back tomorrow, actually. Uh, there's, I had a trip up to the Axis in Ballymun and I met an interesting character. So that may be happening tomorrow with more about that. And then hopefully the story we broke on the on the shack yesterday um, in relation to a colossal, the, the largest political donation in history of $1.65 billion uh, been filtering his way through Dublin back to the US uh, so it can be used. And I'm going to use the, I'm going to give the listeners an, a, another quote from Leonard Le- uh, Leo. It's high time for the conservative movement to be among the ranks of George Soros and other left-wing philanthropists going toe-to-toe in the fight to defend our constitution and its ideals. Talking about how he's going to spend his $1.6 billion. And, and, and just to say, on Friday, Antonio's going to kill me because I haven't put this in the diary yet. We're going to have a podcast on Friday where we're going to look at our renters better off in 2022 than they were in 1915 and it's actually a really good question and some really good good answers to that so i'm looking forward to that on friday yeah well look we lots coming your way folks thanks for listening thanks for your support and oh, someone gave us a, a podcast review the other day martin i'd forgotten we used to do used to ask for them do you remember asking for podcast reviews we're doing this too long what's a podcast review <laughs> yeah exactly talk to you soon folks take care bye bye tony and martin martin and tony speaking to interesting people only it's the echo chamber podcast subscribe now on patreon